Well, good evening, everyone. And um, my name, if you don't know, is Tim Hitchens. I'm the president of the college. Uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome tonight's speaker, Professor Alan Bowman. Wilson College's sign lecture annually offers the floor to experts in classical fields and is always one of our very best attended lectures. Uh, and I'm delighted that tonight is no exception. Sorry, if you want to come down, there's space. <laughs> um, Alan needs no introduction, but let me set out a little, just a little of his background. Um, he was an official student tutorial fellow in ancient history at Christchurch between 1977 and 2002. Uh, he then became Camden Professor of Ancient History, and he was, in 2010, elected as Principal of Brasenose College, a position he held until just four years ago. He has not had to travel far to be with us tonight. His main area of research has been the social and economic history of the Roman Empire, with a particular interest in the documentary evidence of the Greek papyri for Egypt, and we may be hearing more from on that later on. Uh, Alan has also specialised in the Vindolanda writing tablets from northern Britain. In an essay jointly written by our own Roger Tomlin, Alan and Roger talk of how the authors of this paper and Professor David Thomas of the University of Durham have been struggling to read and interpret difficult Latin manuscripts from Roman Britain for the past quarter century or more, and that was 14 years ago. <laughs> Alan also has a strong interest in digital scholarship and information technology as it relates to the visualization and decipherment of damaged documents. He was the founder of the Center for the Study of Ancient Documents at the University of Oxford and served as director until 2018. He was also Vice President for Humanities of the British Academy from 2014 until last year. The major research projects in which I believe he's currently involved include the Corpus of Greek and Bilingual Inscriptions of Ptolemaic Egypt, the Oxford Roman Economy Project, quantifying growth and decline in the economic performance of the Roman Empire, and those Vindolanda writing tablets continuing work on imaging and deciphering unpublished tablets of Roman inscriptions of Britain. But tonight, as you see behind me, Alan will talk to us about Alexandria in the Roman Empire, politics, commerce, and culture. Thank you very much, President. I recognise bits of that description. <laughs> Where will it all end? First of all, thank you to the President and Fellows for the honour of uh, being invited to deliver this lecture. Um, it was a privilege for me to get to know Ronald Syme, uh, though not in a close personal sense, uh, during the last decade of his life, uh, vivid memories. I don't think uh, anyone, at least not any younger academic, as I was in the 70s, was very close to him. Um, he was a revered and somewhat remote figure to younger colleagues, but always courteous and friendly in my experience. And uh, towards the end of his life, I was very flattered that he took a close interest in a, a papyrus. Uh, President was right, you're going to see a few papyri tonight, and there are transcription exercises coming, so um, <laughs> they'll, be, they'll be checked afterwards. <coughs> um, 
took a close interest in a, a papyrus which I'd uh, republished and, uh, and um, discussed in 1970, actually with the encouragement of uh, Fergus Miller, um, to my very great regret, and I'm sure many other people's. Uh, he's not with us tonight, of course. Um, so this is the papyrus, uh, which I will come back to. Uh, you probably won't be able to read it. Um, and that's the back of it. Um, I'll come back to the detail of that later. Uh, towards the end of Ronald's life, he referred to my interpretation uh, with some approval, my reinterpretation of this text. And in fact, of course, being Ronald Syme, he amplified and improved it. Um, not the text, but the interpretation. Uh, in fact, uh, just before he published uh, his interpretation, uh, he, uh, we met and uh, he handed me a small dossier of his notes and he said in that slightly mannered and rather mellifluous and breathy tone, he said, if I perish, you may publish. <laughs> um, he did have a knack of producing, as you will see in the course of this talk, I hope, uh, memorable sayings. Um, he did, in fact, uh, not perish, and he did publish. He survived to do it, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But I can't resist a little bit of a digression, an esprit, uh, uh, jeu d'esprit here. Uh, one feature of the original edition of this by the late John Barnes, Professor of Egyptology, would certainly, probably did, intrigue Syme, because Barnes suggested that this text, uh, of which this is the reverse, the back, uh, was in fact an autograph letter of a Roman emperor. What are the chances of that? Um, such a suggestion, of course, always rings alarm bells for documentary historians like myself. Um, and Simon, of course, loved the theme which immediately springs into a papyrologist's mind when faced with an assertion of that kind, um, fakes, forgeries, bogus documents and hoaxes especially uh, in connection for Syme, in connection with his voluminous work on that notorious collection of imperial biographies, uh, which we know colloquially as, as the Historia Augusta. And a lot of Syme's work, of course, was devoted to the exposure of fraud and historical fiction in that uh, rather odd uh, collection of biographies. Uh, members of the Papyrologists' Union uh, perhaps are not always as sceptical as they ought to be about possible hoaxes, and there are always degrees of uncertainty. But I thought just before I get into serious stuff about Alexandria, I might just as a, as a homage to Syme, uh, further homage to Syme's memory, uh, think about some of the classic celebrated forgeries and hoaxes which have been perpetrated in my lifetime as an academic working on documents. This is the uh, <coughs> um, document which was... Uh, described in 1990 as a fragment of the Gospel of St. Thomas in Demotic Egyptian. I remember vividly the occasion on which uh, John Baines, the professor of Egyptology, um, mentioned this to me at a dinner. Um, and uh, after I took my head out of the dessert, uh, <laughs> perhaps not quite literally, I thought perhaps this not need detain us too long. And indeed, it turned out that the publication of this, the key to the fact that it need not detain us too long, was the name of the alleged author of this alleged um, demotic gospel of Thomas, which was uh, um, literally uh, spelled as Batson, Batson D. Sealing, 
bats on D ceiling. Journal, journal article 1990. So that one, that one goes pretty quickly. But there are others, of course, which have commanded more credibility from credulity <laughs> uh, from um, papyrological historians. Uh, this is the one which mentions or was thought to mention the fact that Jesus had a wife um, and has been exposed. The, uh, the genesis of this document and its history, the history of acquisition and uh, the fraudulent presentation of this has been exposed uh, by a journalist actually uh, not all that long ago. It, it is of course entirely credible that there might be a fragment of a document which could mention both Jesus and the word for wife in the same text, uh, which made it uh, quite difficult to disprove, but in fact, of course, it has been exposed as a fake. Um, and then, finally, something which isn't a fake, but um, the jury is still out a bit on this one. Uh, this is a papyrus from the reign of Cleopatra, uh, which um, is, is a, an administrative document, one detail of which I will come back to that to later, but oops, sorry. Um, that's not what I meant to do. I meant to point to this, this area here, which you won't be able to read. But this, uh, quite clearly, <laughs> quite clearly, uh, has the word has the word ginatai, which is an, an authorization. Uh, let it happen. It, it let it be. Um, and um, the original one of the original editors of this document thought that that was an autograph of Cleopatra herself. And one can't prove it either way. But again, I come back to the idea of the odds. I think it's pretty unlikely. It'll always be virtually impossible to prove the authenticity of an actual autograph. And just thinking of Simon and his obiter dicta just um, uh, put into my mind a couple of other obiter dicta of great men which reached me f when I was in Canada as a doctoral student through the, the Yale network two of Rostovtsev's great sayings were the first which came, these came to me via Bradford Wells the first was if you found something unique you're wrong <laughs> and the second one, the second was if you found something interesting show me your parallels well to Syme and to Alexandria of course central to Syme's view of the Roman world <clears throat> were networks networks identities of elite persons their networks, their connections, their power, whether wielded illegitimately or not. In the Eastern Mediterranean, Alexandria was, ve Alexandria was very special, by far the largest and most prosperous and important city, of obviously of prime importance for the security and prosperity of the Roman Empire as a whole, so control and exploitation needed to be maintained by the imperial authority without the presence of a ruler, direct presence of a ruler after 30 BC, a monarch that is. In the period of its greatest prosperity, and this is really the theme of what follows in the rest of this talk, it was consciously orchestrated and controlled from the highest levels, even without the presence of an emperor, I mean the permanent presence of an emperor. Understanding how this was done, I think, will emphasize that an enduring element of our historical debt to Ronald Syme is the realization that the smallest personal details embedded in inscriptions and papyri and other documents can illuminate and nuance these broader themes. So to begin just before Alexandria in the Roman period, gosh, the beach at Alexandria, as it was in about 1982 when I took this photo, pretty bleak. Uh, but it was here, of course, uh, at the conclusion of the Civil War, 
with Pomp uh, that Pompey was uh, assassinated, murdered. Pompey had become, by that stage, and this is uh, not unimportant, the executor of the will of Cleopatra's father, Ptolemy Auletes, um, which demonstrates quite clearly the extent of Roman control over the finances of the Ptolemaic kingdom in its last phase. Probably when... Uh, oops. No. Ah, there we are. Probably when Pompey was killed, it looked a bit more like this. The aftermath of Pompey's death, of course, was Caesar's presence. And this famous picture by Jerome shows that wonderful moment at which Cleopatra revealed herself to Caesar, having been an unrolled from a carpet. Um, one of my colleagues published a short article in which he said it wasn't a carpet, it was a bedroll. Uh, well, <clears throat> that may have been appropriate to what followed, which we won't go into <laughs> in too much detail, uh, but Caesar could hardly have been more intimately involved in the fortunes of the Egyptian dynasty uh, in the years following 48 after this wonderful introduction uh, to the Queen. Um, a few years later, this inscribed hieroglyphic uh, stele uh, shows the absorption into the dynastic structure of the child, which was allegedly, and as one of my graduate students, American graduate students, remarked to me many years ago, only Cleopatra knew who the father of that child was. Um, perhaps not even her. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but the child of the liaison was absorbed into the dynasty, and this stele uh, gives him the proper Egyptian titulature, which he also gets, of course, in Greek documents too, which is Ptolemy, also called Caesar. We know him colloquially as Caesarian, but that is a nickname. It's a sobriquet which comes from Roman sources, I think certainly from Cicero, perhaps exclusively from Cicero. So it was really just a... It was, it was never an official name. His official titulature was Ptolemy, also called Caesar. Um, and what that shows, of course, is someone's ambition, serious ambition, to unite the East and West and to amalgamate two dynasties into one, the Caesarian dynasty and the, <coughs> the dynasty of the Ptolemies. Uh, that, of course, was, to people like Cicero, the senatorial elite, was anathema. Uh, but it shouldn't really have surprised anyone who was familiar at the time with the multiple interconnections between dynastic families in those eastern kingdoms under Rome's dominance, either as clients, client kings, or as uh, puppet rulers of uh, annexed provinces uh, or veering between both, state, both statuses. This, this, the, the multiple interconnections between Eastern dynasts were uh, very obvious, uh, are very obvious even now. The crucial difference uh, between Egypt and some of these other places was that Egypt was not a minor principality on the Roman sphere of influence. It was central to the economy and the culture of the Mediterranean world. And, of course, it was the last of the Hellenistic kingdoms to retain its supposed autonomy. But the Romans were already deeply embedded. And that um, papyrus, which I just showed you with the Cleopatra's, supposed Cleopatra signature on it, um, 
is much more interesting, actually, for the fact that what it does show, what the text, the main text shows, is a donation of land, extensive uh, amounts of land, being made to a Roman senator uh, who became a landowner in Egypt on a significant scale in the network of the late 30s BC. Uh, and that really is very important. Uh, unfortunately, the precise name of this senator is uh, uh, rather ambiguous to read. Uh, uh, but there are two possibilities, and whichever one it is, uh, he's, he's a rich and powerful individual of senatorial status. And, of course, at the centre of that network, by the late 30s, which is when that papyrus uh, dates to, uh, were Antony and Cleopatra. And there's something quite interesting, a text which has been edited by my colleague Charles Crowther, um, and is... Um, a statue base which uh, concerns Mark Antony in Alexandria, a rather crude base which is used for an inscription which, as you can see, describes him in relatively informal language. The Greek word for table companion, uh, which uh, Charles and I have spent some time agonising over the interpretation of this, but um, paras parasitos, which some people have thought was a personal name, but perhaps not a rather crude text, probably reused, uh, which um, is particularly interesting to me because it's uh, one of the, uh, the, I think, the only contemporary attestation of that word amimatos, inimitable, which comes to us through Plutarch in an, uh, in an anecdote about um, Antony and Cleopatra being the um, amimatobion, is the word he uses, the inimitable livers. Liver, of course, is an ambiguous term too, but I think in that case it refers to lives rather than um, um, deteriorating organs. <laughs> um, so, as far as I know, uh, this is the only direct contemporary evidence for that use of that term, and that's, uh, that it itself is interesting. This inscription, incidentally, is going to be republished as... Uh, one of the items in the new corpus of Ptolemaic inscriptions. Uh, I mention that because it's an undertaking which Charles and I and others have um, embarked upon, uh, which was begun by another of our uh, late and very distinguished Oxford colleagues, Peter Fraser, and is now coming to completion in the hands of the Oxford University Press. So Egypt became a Roman province in 30 BC. Alexandria, the seat of government... Uh, the imperialistic publicity for dissemination of this fact includes, of course, many well-known statements in various media. Um, the coinage... Oops. Sensitive object, this. Um, which, in modern terms, I think you would translate as we've got Egypt done. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, a stark statement. And then there is the artistic production which turns its attention to the new age and the new ruler who is incorporated in the indigenous as well as the Hellenistic iconography. This is the famous Tatsa Farnese. The currently fashionable view of this, and I'm no expert on art history, is that it is the work of an Alexandrian artist, perhaps working in the West uh, between about 30 and 10 BC, in other words, in the first couple of decades of uh, the Roman rule of Egypt celebrates Augustus and the victory over Antony and Cleopatra at Actium 
uh, and the central figures are thought to be Saturnus and the genius of the Gauls, the Genius Galliarum. And then there's literature. Um, this, as you can see, is a papyrus from Herculaneum, or this is transmitted on a papyrus from Herculaneum, so not something that was found in Egypt, but uh, an extravagantly eulogistic uh, portrayal. I'm not, I've got quite a lot of texts coming tonight in this form, and I'm not going to read them out. <laughs> You'll be glad to know. Uh, I'm trusting that everybody can see or at least get the gist of what these are. Uh, and this is, this is a, a poem uh, which celebrates Augustus's victory, of course, in very extravagant, uh, Octavian's victory in very extravagant terms. And then, of course, turning to Egypt itself, um, the literary productions include this papyrus, which was published in 1979 by Peter Parsons and colleagues, found in the far south uh, at Khazaribrim, which um, includes verses by its first, the first governor of Egypt, Cornelius Gallus, ill-fated Cornelius Gallus. Uh, a few people think, still think it's a forgery. Um, I think I trust Peter to know a forgery when he sees one, and I don't think that's a um, view which has gained much credence. When it was originally published, my dear old friend John Bramble of Corpus uh, um, remarked on the fact, first of all, it's the only significant amount of poetry that we have from Cornelius Gallus, indeed, I think perhaps the only amount. And then John said, it's probably not typical. <laughs> <laughs> we had a drink on that. Um, if genuine, which I'm sure it is, um, or fairly sure, I trust that it is, it seems likely to have been copied and disseminated in Alexandria itself, if not composed there. Uh, Gallus himself was there for a couple of years, at least a bit, a bit over two years. Um, accessions of new emperors, then, are a theme which recur through the documentary history uh, of Egypt, and... Um, New emperors received explicit literary expressions in announcements of accessions on papyri, uh, and these must originate in Alexandria for wider dissemination in the country. Um, I brought a couple of examples, uh, which again just illustrate the extravagant terms in which perhaps these resonate with modern political rhetoric in which uh, people are hailed. So Hadrian, um, an Oxyrhynchus papyrus, we're all wearing garlands for 10 days to celebrate the accession of Hadrian. Um, Diocletian, oh, this is, sorry, this is Hadrian again, uh, compared to uh, Phoebus Apollo proclaiming the uh, accession of Hadrian. And uh, everybody gets out into the street and laughs. Hadrian, of course, did visit the city and Egypt in a uh, little bit later in his reign in 130 and we'll come back to that and as uh, of course did Diocletian here um, again a very extravagant pronouncement of the accession of Diocletian who also came back to Alexandria later in his reign in 297 to 8 uh, in order to relieve the city of a siege and occupation by a usurper who had proclaimed himself as, um, as emperor so that theme brings me back to the papyrus with which I started, uh, the um, 
one which Ronald Syme had, uh, had had his attention drawn to. Um, and when I republished this in 1970, I thought that it was a copy of a letter, a copy of a letter, not an autograph, uh, but circulated through Alexandria, from Alexandria through embassies which um, would have taken it to the place where this was found, which is, again was Oxyrhynchus. Um, this, I, I think, announced, I'll put the translation up in a minute, announces a failed attempt uh, on the throne, on the imperial throne, by a character called Avidius Cassius in AD 175, an attempt which had been stimulated uh, by false rumours, or rumours which turned out to be false, of the death of Marcus Aurelius. And Avidius Cassius, this is the, uh, the back of it, which has got the address to somebody who is an ambassador, said to be an ambassador, presbutes. And this is the translation, or my version of the translation, um, which you can see it refers to his desire to confer benefits on Alexandria because he says that it is, and I think that the phrase ancestral city is very likely to be what we've got here. Um, I guessed in 1970 that uh, he claimed this special relationship with Alexandria because he was there as a boy when his father was um, prefect of Egypt, governor of the province. His father was called Avidius Heliodorus. He was a well-known orator, Epicurean philosopher, and one-time secretary to the emperor Hadrian. And he held the governorship of Egypt between 137 and 142. And that was particularly what interested Ronald Syme, who produced a better, I think, a more precise and better hypothesis. Uh, and this is, I quote, what he wrote in, it was published in 1985, I think. In 130, the emperor at last paid a visit to the land of the Nile. If Heliodorus was then his secretary, a solution emerges painlessly. A high official normally had his wife with him. The avowed relationship between the son and the city of Alexandria is at once explained, his birth year certified. The failure of the attempted usurpation was predicted in a single word. No, sorry, that's the end of the quote. The failure of this attempted usurpation was allegedly predicted in a single word note which was sent to Avidius Cassius by the famous sophist uh, Herodes Atticus. Um, just one single word, emanes, you've gone mad. <laughs> well, it turned out Herodes was right. Marcus wasn't dead and the usurpation failed. But what support, one of the things which supports the authenticity and credibility of this letter is a striking echo of some of the reported and orchestrated events which marked the accession of Vespasian in Alexandria over a century earlier, with embassies and demonstrations in the city attending his proclamation. And the account that we've got from Josephus uh, could really be transposed word for word into what Avidius hoped for or was expecting in Alexandria with these ambassadors being sent out over the country to announce the projected success of a new regime. Um, so there, Vespasian's accession, which of course was successful. Um, and the convening of crowds and embassies 
again, I think is, 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 it is a stock element, but there's no reason why it shouldn't be accurate. Public demonstrations of this kind could be both uh, favourable and slightly unfavourable or parodic. Um, there's certainly one um, account in Philo's uh, Flaccus, uh, in Flaccum, of uh, um, an occasion on which the crowd in Alexandria dressed up somebody who is described in, in contemporary terms as a, a lunatic or a madman with a crown of papyrus and driving him through the streets in parody of what the Roman emperor might look like. Um, and there is also uh, an account in one of the fictional acts of the Alexandrian martyrs, which I'll uh, come to in a few moments, um, here, I think, in which, as you can see, um, these semi-fictional accounts of embassies of Greeks and Jews before Roman emperors. In this case, it's, it's probably Hadrian, although there has been a case made that it might have been Trajan, but whichever one it is, the point that I want to make here is that they've got the representation of the emperor by an actor from the stage, uh, so this whole thing becomes a kind of theatrical performance, um, not unlike, I suppose, the occasion on which that the strange person was driven through the streets of Alexandria pretending to be the emperor. Sort of reminds me of Donald Trump a bit, but uh, perhaps that's going a little too far. So this, of course, underlying this is the volatility uh, and the sensitivity of the Roman authority to the volatility of the Alexandrian population that often required military control. The strife between the Greek and the Jewish communities, which is represented uh, in these, this long series of semi-fictional or fictional accounts of uh, procès verbal, of uh, proceedings before emperors, uh, which appear to be based on, at least to go back to our orig originals, which are actually genuine, uh, are really very clear symptoms of this uh, potential for unrest in the Alexandrian community. And of course, by 115 to 17, uh, that in, in Alexandria and in Egypt as a whole, that had reached the point of a serious revolt by the Jewish community which ended in its destruction and the destruction not only of the important Alexandrian Jewish community but in the destruction of the Jewish population of Egypt as a whole. Um, a lot of this uh, strife between Greeks and Jews came back to issues of citizenship and status in Alexandria which uh, caused the Roman authority uh, considerable trouble. Um, and one aspect of that I think is worth uh, drawing attention to before we move on, which is the special character of Alexandria and its population of half a million, which makes it really a true metropolis of the empire. And in one way which I think is significant and hasn't really been sufficiently emphasised in my view, uh, is... Um, makes it comparable to Rome as its eastern counterpart. And this is the unique nature of Alexandrian citizenship, uh, particularly in comparison with the Roman citizenship. Uh, there are many obscurities about the history of Alexandrian citizenship in the, both in the, under the Ptolemies and in the Roman period. 
uh, as between people who had full citizenship or some who may have had a halfway house kind of status. But uh, the point uh, which I want to make about it is, can be made quite clearly from this well-known letter of Pliny, Pliny the Younger, in which he asked the Emperor Trajan uh, for a grant of Roman citizenship for his doctor therapist, a uh, character called Harpocras, um, who was an Egyptian, not an Alexandrian. And the whole point of this letter and its reply, and the reply from Trajan is to say that if he's going to get Roman citizenship, he needs to get Alexandrian citizenship first. And that is particularly important because it brings out that character of Alexandrian citizenship as a parallel to Roman citizenship. Because, as is well known, in the wider empire, uh, Roman citizens, people who had that status, of course, were not necessarily Romans or even Italians. Uh, it was granted very widely to large numbers of people across the whole empire. So they would get the status and the legal and social privileges of Roman citizens without ever having been to Rome, or perhaps never even seen it. Um, and the privileges of Alexandrians, I think, are parallel to this. So Egyptians um, could be awarded Roman, uh, Alexandrian citizenship as a halfway stage or a stepping stone uh, towards Roman citizenship. And we do know from our documents, which I'm certainly not going to quote at length, that there were Alexandrian citizens... Uh, of course, there were Alexandrians who had Alexandrian citizenship who were genuinely from Alexandria, lived there, and probably were born there. But also, there were a lot of Egyptians who were not Alexandrians by residence or birth who obtained Alexandrian citizenship as a status mark and this halfway, the halfway stage towards the possible acquisition of Roman citizenship. So that really makes it a kind of world city in the same way as Rome uh, was a world city with its citizenship spread widely across the empire, although, of course, in the case of Alexandria, it was more restricted. Um, that, I think, uh, does give it a very special flavour, and there is, as far as I know, no other city in the empire of which a similar kind of status, uh, to which a similar kind of status applies. Uh, well, so much for politics, I think. Now something on commerce. Map of Egypt. Um, basically, Alexandria, Red Sea ports, Coptos on the Nile, transport routes for goods coming from the Far East, sorry, from India um, and the East. Um, hugely important source of wealth for Rome, all of it channeled downriver through to Alexandria and through Alexandria into the wider Mediterranean world. Lots of, lots of evidence for economic interests and land ownership by Romans, both of Romans of high status, both senatorial and uh, equestrian status in Egypt, including that Cleopatra papyrus which I showed you earlier, um, much less evidence for Egyptians or Alexandrians extending their economic or political power beyond Egypt from that base. A certain amount, but not very much. One of the main constraints on this, and this is, again goes back to the theme which I uh, mentioned at the beginning, is that the imperial centre kept a very tight and direct grip on commerce. And direct is what I want to emphasise, because again, I don't think that has been sufficiently emphasised. This is not a kind of laissez-faire... Uh, ruling class which lets the, um, 
the, the vulgar um, uh, lower classes get on with it, uh, it's much more direct and much more controlling uh, from the Emperor Augustus onwards, although I'm not trying to suggest it could be thought of as a monopoly. Um, nice reconstruction of Alexandria, which gives you some sense of what people thought the commercial facilities might be like with its two wonderful harbours. Um, and as for the Emperor Augustus, this well-known passage from Suetonius, which emphasises, uh, perhaps a little uh, tendentiously, but nevertheless, a direct interest by the Emperor in Alexandrian trade and merchandise. Um, there is an article in print somewhere which goes so far as to try to make this into a policy, but I think that perhaps is going a little far, uh, but at least it might be... Um, reasonably described as uh, evidence for an attitude. And of course, we all know about Egypt and Rome's grain supply. Uh, Egypt supplied grain. It fed the city of Rome for a significant proportion of the year. Um, but that's not really what I wanted to focus on today. Uh, I was thinking of the immense monetary value of the eastern trade through the Red Sea ports which crossed the de desert to Coptos on the Nile and then uh, downriver to Alexandria. And apart from uh, general statements, here we are, Pliny on the Red Sea trade with some figures, 50 million sesterces per year and again 100 million sesterces per year. So uh, large sums of money involved in all of this. Uh, and uh, well-known papyrus, which I'll come back to the detail of this in a minute, the top bullet point, this Musiris papyrus, which uh, has a cargo worth six, nearly seven million drachmas, drachmas are sesterces for the purposes of reckoning in these, uh, that they're an equivalent value in these documents. And again, uh, three ships to Alexandria, 1.25 million, and a maritime loan in the middle of the second century of uh, 47,000. So these are, these are very significant sums. And that cargo which is referred to in the papyrus which was published first in 1981 and has been commented on a, by quite a lot of people including Dominic Rathburn, um, detail uh, only, only a proportion uh, of the cargo of this ship which is only one ship involved in this trade, uh, which is uh, nearly, nearly 1,200 talents of silver. So it's a huge amount of money uh, which is invested in this trade, uh, in the, um, certainly in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD and through into, into the 3rd. Um, The stakes so then were very high. Um, the interest and the involvement of people of the very highest socio-economic levels in this trade, uh, I think, can be deduced partly from scraps of evidence like that for Augustus, but also um, this indicative record from the Historia Augusta. Of course, one mustn't take this literally. It's probably a complete fabrication. Um, and the, the usurper firmus of the 270s AD almost certainly never existed uh, and is probably a caricature drawn from uh, a usurper or pretender of the 4th century from North Africa who was also called firmus. Be that as it may, <laughs> 
the point about the point of my putting this up is that it is just encapsulates exactly what one would think a rich Alexandrian merchant was about. Um, so he uh, he uh, could support a whole army on paper and glue. He kept up the closest relations with the Blemies. These are the desert the desert peoples, uh, and often sent merchant merchant vessels to the Indias too. And these huge elephant tusks and so on and so forth. Uh, this is in the reign of Aurelian, 270 to 275, supposedly. But as I say, it's probably a complete fiction. Um, but it does indicate uh, exactly what kind of a caricature uh, you might expect to find. Uh, but coming down just uh, as a final uh, topic in this little section on commerce, what, what uh, if you come down to the detail of who's running these kinds of operations and what the involvement of the imperial house is, you can find actually some quite specific evidence. Uh, we know from papyrus, a group of papyrus documents originally from Alexandria, which are so devilishly difficult to read that I'm not even going to think of putting them up on the screen, um, that uh, from the earliest days of Roman occupation, uh, military personnel and more significantly slaves and freedmen of the imperial house, the imperial familia, were in Alexandria in significant numbers right from the start. And surely the garrison army of Nicopolis in Alexandria itself was accompanied or followed in very short order by the commercial functionaries of the imperial house. Uh, they recognised and exploited lucrative opportunities in the operation of new provincial territory. And this persists, so there's much uh, interesting detail in those documents which contain records of the transportation of goods from the Red Sea port of Mios Hormos, which uh, is on, on the coast. And man, many of the, docu many of the uh, documents which we've got uh, attest to the activities of a private family uh, transportation firm, family transportation firm uh, from the Julio-Claudian period. This has a, a number of transactions with unnamed, with, sorry, with named imperial freedmen from the imperial house. The exact nature of these transactions, whether they're administrative or financial, is unclear, but we've got individuals named Epaphroditos, who are clearly imperial slaves and freedmen, another one called Anikatos Komonos, who is a slave or freedman of the emperor Tiberius, and is involved in the trade for, of grain, wine, coinage, and silver plate. So these individuals were either doing business on their own account or on behalf of the imperial household. Um, in practice, I think that distinction is not that significant. Um, there's a lot of misconception about uh, the degree of independence which slaves and freedmen could um, exercise from their owners or their patrons. Um, but um, in practice, as far as concerns the imperial family, which was very widespread and very influential, um, this would mean, I think, that the imperial family, the imperial household, was directly involved in this trade and in the economic detail. All of this is um, subject to some caution, but uh, there is at least one uh, archaeologist who believes that a wine stopper which was found at the port of Mios Hamos indicates that the Flavian emperors received direct income from this trade. Well, of course, it went into the imperial coffers uh, and... Uh, 
I'm not about to try to sort out the distinctions here between um, personal wealth and the wealth of the imperial coffers, but the control and the ubiquitous presence of the imperial slaves and freedmen is, I think, very important. So far from maintaining a lofty detachment from vulgar commerce and filthy lucre, I think the apparatus of the imperial household was in there with its sleeves rolled up from the very start. Um, I wasn't going to refer to Roman writing tablets from Vindolanda, um, but just as an aside, <laughs> I may say that this phenomenon is not confined to Egypt. Um, it's characteristic of imperial expansion in Britain too, and that's shown by the evidence of the early phases of Roman occupation in London, which are the tablets published by Roger Tomlin, uh, the so-called Bloomberg tablets, and also from the Vindolanda tablets too, where there's clear reference to the imperial freedmen, the members of the imperial house, the Kaisariani, being intimately involved in trade in cereal products and other items. Um, and of course, we don't have documentary evidence of this kind from many places, but where we do have it, this is what shows up. Uh, I like to think that if it came from other places too, we would be um, likely to find a similar phenomenon. And finally then, um, I turn to culture. Inevitably, uh, we think of the legacy of the Ptolemaic period, uh, which saw the highest levels of literature, scholarship and science achieved through royal patronage, the foundation of the museum and the library, and the later boost to philosophical studies as a result of the exodus of the philosophers from Athens after the sack of the city, Roman sack of the city by Sulla in the 80s BC. In the library of Alexandria, the, the scholarship, focus of scholarship was, well, there's literary crea creativity, of course, and uh, literary scholarship. Callimachus, Theocritus, Eratosthenes, Apollonius, Rhodes, and the editors of the Homeric texts. Um, and that, of course, um, shouldn't minimise the achievement in mathematics, science, engineering and medicine too. All of this exhaustively dealt with by Peter Fraser in his uh, massive book on Ptolemaic Alexandria. Um, the Library of Alexandria, the old library, not the new one, which was built in the 1990s, uh, <laughs> without many books, actually, sadly. Um, got, a lot of, got a lot of computers, but not many books. Um, the... Um, the fate of the library of the Roman period uh, is well known to be uncertain. Uh, we can be sure that there was some mishap in the form of a fire, either in the main library or, or in its warehouses, depositories, uh, at the time of Caesar's presence, the end of the Civil War in 48 to 7 BC. And the other thing we know for sure is that the library no longer existed when the Arabs arrived in 639 to 42. So the chronological gap in our knowledge is huge. Uh, but we seem a long way uh, by the later Roman period from that apogee of Hellenistic poetry, scholarship and science. As far as the history of the museum is concerned, uh, well, we're somewhat better informed. Um, Strabo's description uh, is well known. Um, but I'm less interested for the moment in uh, the physical um, structures than uh, in the membership and the activity. The Museum of Alexandria is often said to have a lower profile of the Roman period, but one of our former graduate students, now um, professor in Italy, has collected uh, a lot of evidence for um, 
the members of the museum in the, and the intellectual activity in the Roman period, which shows, uh, I think, that what we've got is a good deal more than the sum of its parts. The, Roman, the museum continued to exist and to thrive through the Roman period. The Emperor Claudius is said to have expanded it and promoted readings, particularly of his own works. <laughs> it's very sort of Oxford, that's the name. His own historical works. Uh, we're told uh, that at the time of his assault on the Alexandrian populace in the early 3rd century, uh, the Emperor Caracalla, who uh, decimated the population of Alexandria, at the same time abolished the free meals and the tax exemption of the members of the museum. Uh, we do know the names of some of its members, quite a few actually, um, as Livia Capone shows, more than is generally credited. Um, one striking feature of the Roman period is the evidence for members who were not scholars or literary figures, or at least not primarily scholars or literary figures, uh, but were high-status administrators. We know of about a dozen of these in the 1st and 2nd century, in, the, in addition to the names of the scholarly members of the museum. Uh, this seems to be a major innovation, or to put it another way, we don't have any parallels for the Ptolemaic period yet. Um, so it may be a Roman I innovation. I'm not quite sure why it kept reminding me that Margaret Thatcher became an FRS. <laughs> um, well, I suppose I do know. Um, but there is an example, uh, just one. There are about a dozen of these uh, admini Roman administrators who had held quite high uh, positions who were then given the ta tax exemption and maintenance and free maintenance in the museum. Um, such administrators, of course, I say they weren't primarily uh, literary or, or philosophical scholars, but uh, they could be and often were uh, fairly distinguished intellectuals, deeply involved in literary and other cultural activities. And that, of course, will record what I just recall what I just said a few minutes ago about the father of Avidius Cassius, Heliodorus, who was himself uh, well known as an orator and an Epicurean philosopher, as well as the prefect of the uh, province. And he accompanied Hadrian when Hadrian visited Alexandria famously in 130 and uh, held disputes with the philosophers. There are several other native Alexandrians and others who became members of the museum, and I just brought along a couple of examples, uh, one of which was a papyrus which um, I published a few years ago, and I know Chris Pelling disagrees with this. Um, there are two hypotheses as to, as to who wrote this, but I think it was Timagenes, who was an Alexandrian and a member of the museum. Um, Chris thinks it was somebody else, but uh, I don't think either of us can prove it. But it's certainly in that territory of subject matter which uh, Timagenes is known to have written about. Um, so that turned up a few years ago, and of course it reflects the uh, local interest in Alexandria, if, it's, if my identification is correct, in the relationship between Rome and the Ptolemies at the end of the Republic. Uh, more striking, perhaps, is, uh, and with a broader significance, is um, this inscription, which uh, a copy of an inscription which turned up on a extensive papyrus published a few years ago by our colleague Amin Ben Aysa. Um, and this, this emphasises the international dimension of the museum and its members. Here is an Alexandrian, a grammarian, a poet, a tragedian who triumphed in the athletic and cultural contest, contests 
but he's celebrated not only in Alexandria but in Syracuse, in Sicily as well. So there's a big international dimension to this. Um, one could go on about this, but I think these two examples do point very clearly to significant um, activity in the, uh, in the museum and its membership, uh, even if it's not quite at the level of uh, Callimachus or Apollonius Rhodius. Um, there was a view um, expressed in the 1970s that the presence of these non-scholar administrative members of the museum uh, indicated the bureaucratization of the museum. Um, well, Livia Caponi in her book talks of it as politicization. Um, of course, if we have a mixture, then uh, one needs to be a little bit careful to try to see where the balance is. And I would put a more positive spin on it by underlining the fact that at least in the first two centuries AD, so many of these imperial administrators were in fact highly intellectual individuals. Um, and this was a phenomenon, of course, that was particularly marked in the Hadrianic Age for reasons which uh, many of us will be very familiar with. In addition to all that, Alexandria remained, I should say, a centre of medicine. It retained its importance as a centre of medicine and other branches of scholarship through the Roman period. You know, you think of Galen and the top polymath Ptolemy. Uh, secondary scholarship continues to be represented into the 4th century and later by Theon of Alexandria and others. Theon was the father of Hypatia the author of and the author of commentaries on, Luquid, on Euclid. It remains difficult to encapsulate and characterise these from scattered sources, and the intellectual activity was influenced in different directions, obviously different directions, from the second century onwards by the uh, advent of Christianity, the foundation of the Alexandrian catechetical school by Neoplatonism, and the Christian exegetical tr tradition, which takes us into the world of um, vigorous political and doctrinal disputes. You can't really separate the two by that time, by the 4th century, uh, up to and long after the Council of Nicaea, and ultimately to dissidents, rioting and violence. That's all very intellectually fertile and vibrant, although I can't see any particular reason to connect that directly with the library and the museum. But archaeological evidence that's come to light in Alexandria in the last few decades uh, does reveal extensive civic, cultural and intellectual facilities at the heart of the city, at least in the later Roman period, 3rd and 4th centuries. Um, and Strabo's description of the city would certainly lead us to expect that they were there earlier too. Uh, when I first went to Alexandria uh, and took that picture of the beach earlier, um, and I, I was also able to take a picture at Comaldic of the, what were then quite recent archaeological excavations which had revealed a structure somewhat like this uh, which um, appeared to be a lecture theatre or schoolroom and it was, it was unique, it was the only one on this site. And if you go there now you see about 15 of them. Uh, a huge range of these lecture theatres and buildings um, right at the heart of the what is thought to be a sort of gymnasial complex at the, with baths and other buildings at the heart of the city in Comaldica. And this could hardly be a more public advertisement of an intellectual tradition um, which uh, clearly subsisted long into the, uh, deep into the Roman period and probably beyond. It could hardly be more public and nothing like it is known elsewhere. Of course, it's always a hostage to fortune to say it's unique because you never know what's going to turn up tomorrow. But... Uh, this particular complex with these 
multiple rooms uh, is certainly unique at the moment. So finally, um, well, in the first three centuries of our era, Alexandria was the most important city in the Eastern Mediterranean, and it was vital for the stability of the imperial house and the economic and cultural prosperity of Rome itself and the empire as a whole. On several critical occasions, the fate of the Roman Republic and the empire was decisively determined in that city, well away from Rome, the epicentre. From the early 4th century, of course, that changed radically. It doesn't take a genius to see that the major catalyst of that change was the establishment, foundation and establishment of Constantinople as an imperial capital. The Egyptian grain, which had earlier fed Rome, now fed Constantinople. Wealthy Egyptian elites and landowners, such as the family of the Apiones, who were well represented in the Oxyrhynchus Papyrus collection down the road in the secular library, they had not made, their counterparts had not made their socio-political mark in an earlier age, but the Apiones did make their marks at the highest in echelons of power and privilege, but in the imperial court of Constantinople, in the changed geopolitical world of the 5th and 6th centuries, in which Europe's role was very different and in many ways less prosperous. The East develops in different directions for many reasons, including the strategic very few generals or emperors, with the exception of Vespasian, had been able successfully to use the East as a power platform. Not Pompey, not Mark Antony, and certainly not Avidius Cassius. After Diocletian and Constantine, Alexandria became largely irrelevant to the broader strategic concerns of the West. And just to conclude, another one of Symes' obiter dicta, I never saw this written down, but I did definitely hear him say it because it was so memorable. The key to the history of Europe is the line of the Orient Express. Thank you very much. Just um, thank, thank Ellen profusely for that tribute to the genius of Ronald Syme, uh, tribute to the global city of Alexandria, the tribute to the ability to read extraordinary detail into tiny fragments and to convert what was our fragmentary understanding into our understanding of the fragments. So thank you very much indeed, Ellen. <laughs>